Luke chapter 22, we begin with verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that for I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of verse 38. We know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention, especially to the very end of verse 37, you'll notice what the Lord says there. For the things concerning me have an end. The things concerning me have an end, Christ says. Verse 37. That word for end is translated in other versions by the word fulfillment. The things concerning me have a fulfillment or will be fulfilled. I like the translation of our authorized version because I think it captures more of the fullness of the Greek term behind it. The literal meaning of the Greek word can be any number of things. It can mean fulfillment, but it can also mean the aim or purpose behind an activity. And I'm especially struck by the meaning purpose, because once the things that, that Christ refers to actually came to pass, the disciples would fail to see that the things concerning Christ had an end or had a purpose. It really is a very helpless situation to be in when you think that the things that are going on around you just don't seem to be serving any purpose at all. And oftentimes, well, maybe often is too strong a term, but there are times when the people of God do go through seasons when 
You don't understand the providential dealings of God. And it seems like there is no purpose to the things that are taking place in my life. The disciples would have thought that at this time, in the time that would shortly come to pass. But here in the words of our text, Christ gives them a word of assurance. The things concerning me do have an end. They do serve a purpose. And like I say, it would appear to them to be without any purpose that one so innocent as Christ and one so powerful as Christ and one as wise as Christ would be taken and would be slandered and physically abused and then tried and found guilty and at last would be nailed to a cross. What purpose could such things possibly serve the disciples would reason among themselves, other than serving the wicked purpose of the Jewish leaders in eliminating a man that they considered to be a rival who threatened their power and their position and status in life. I've always been struck by the words of those Emmaus Road disciples in Luke chapter 24 who were so downcast and discouraged. Do you remember the scene? Never had hopes been raised so high only to be dashed. And so they say to the risen Christ, whom they did not yet recognize, in verse 21 of Luke 24, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. You know the irony in that kind of statement? We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Little did they know that that redemption had just been accomplished. But their hopes had been dashed. We were so sure they would have reasoned between them. We were so sure that he was the promised Messiah, they were saying in effect. After all, he had demonstrated it himself to be a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him those Emmaus road disciples certainly saw no purpose in what the chief priests and their rulers had done it appeared to them to be so wrong and so unjust, and so uncalled for, especially since only a very short time earlier, Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem triumphantly to all the hosannas that were being shouted out by everyone. Eventually, though, those disciples, along with the rest of Christ's disciples, would come to understand that there was indeed a purpose that had been served by Christ's sufferings. It would take the risen Christ's exposition of the scriptures to them in order to show them that a purpose had most definitely been served. So we read in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, And he, Jesus, said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures 
and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. He opened their understanding to the scriptures. That's a good thing to keep in mind, you know, every time you open your Bible, it should be accompanied by this kind of prayer. Lord, open my understanding that I may understand now what I'm about to read. We, of course, in our day have the benefit of a completed Bible as well as thousands of years of church history to aid us in our understanding of the Bible. And with all these resources at our disposal, we are clearly able to recognize that the things concerning Christ did indeed serve a definite purpose. Well, this morning in preparation for our remembrance of Christ around this table, I want to look more closely at that purpose where the things concerning me have an end, our Lord said, or they have a purpose. It means the same thing. Christ says that in verse 37. Let's consider then that the end that Christ served, the purpose that he recognized, first of all, they served what we might label as an eternal purpose. The things concerning Christ served an eternal purpose. We know this, of course, because Christ himself was and is an eternal person. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And verse 14, we begin to zoom in now on the purpose that the Word served. We read in verse 14 in John 1, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The very name, you know, that was given to Christ when he came into this world announced his purpose for coming into the world. This was not just an arbitrary selection of a name. So we read the angel's instructions to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. But while he thought on these things, that is Joseph, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That very name Jesus was given to him because the word Jesus which is Joshua in the Hebrew, it means literally Jehovah is salvation or Jehovah saves. You'll give him the name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Isn't it good to know that before Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, and carried the whole human race with them into sin, 
that God already had a plan in place for sinful man's rescue from sin. The fall of man into sin, you see, did not catch God by surprise. He foresaw their fall and already had a plan in place to rescue sinners from such a fall. This eternal purpose is captured most clearly in the book of Revelation, where you find the title given to Christ, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I know I pointed out that this designation for Christ as the Lamb and the Lamb slain is the designation that occurs most often for Christ in the book of Revelation. No less than 25 times do you find Christ designated as the Lamb in the book of Revelation. And in a number of those instances, he's called the Lamb slain. We know, of course, that the book of Revelation was written by John on the Isle of Patmos after Christ had come and died and rose again. This designation found in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, however, takes us back in time all the way back to the beginning of creation and even before creation. That's the meaning of the lamb slain before the foundation or from the foundation of the world. It's no wonder then that Christ could say that the things concerning him had an end. The things concerning him were all in accordance with the plan that was designed in eternity past, before time even began, and before the foundation of the earth was even laid. The entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, contains the story of the unfolding of this plan. You should keep that primary theme of the Bible in mind every time you read your Bible. One of the features of the King James Study Bible found in the introduction to each book is a section called Synopsis, the contribution of the book named to redemptive revelation. So when that Bible, when that study Bible was crafted, the editors and the contributors were very concerned that the reader, the student of the Bible, understand that each particular book serves a purpose, has a part to play in redemptive revelation. It tells part of the story of Christ redeeming men from sin. So we recognize an eternal end or an eternal purpose when we hear Christ say, the things concerning me have an end. But let's consider next that the things concerning Christ also served a prophetic purpose. Similar vein, okay, but a little bit different. The things concerning Christ served a prophetic purpose. Listen again to the words of our text. For I say unto you, 
that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. When Christ in that statement refers to what was written, he's calling our attention to the book of Isaiah, that very familiar chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, which so clearly reveals the sufferings of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 12, where we read these words, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. There's the part of the verse that Christ refers to in particular. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In that verse from Isaiah 53, we find then Christ dying for the transgressors, having poured out his soul unto death. We find Christ identifying with the transgressors. We find Christ bearing the sins of the transgressors. And we find Christ making intercession for the transgressors. I always think it's worth noting from that verse in Isaiah 53, the very close connection between Christ dying for transgressors as well as making intercession for the transgressors. The two things you could say are very strongly linked, Christ dying and Christ making intercession. They are linked in this way that Christ's death lays the groundwork for his intercession and his intercession is based on the groundwork that is laid by his atoning death. And because of his atoning death, his intercession will never be denied. When he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Those are words he prayed from the cross. And because he was at that time uh, making atonement for the sins of his people, he was interceding then at the same time for those people. And that was a prayer that would not be denied because the groundwork for the answer to that prayer was being laid at the very same time. Our shorter catechism asks the question in question number 25, how does Christ exercise the office of a priest? And the answer, Christ executed the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. This is a work that Christ is engaged in this very moment. The work of making intercession for his people. 
And basically, you could say that what his intercession amounts to is this. Heavenly Father, please apply to my people all the benefits that I have purchased for them in the shedding of my blood. And we can draw a lesson from Christ's intercession for our own prayer lives so that when we go to prayer, we want to make the atoning work of Christ the ground for everything we pray for. O oh Lord, grant to me the blessings that were procured by Christ by his atoning death. So when Christ says the things concerning him have an end, we recognize at once that they serve a prophetic end. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. The entire chapter, not just verse 12, but you could actually go much further. Listen to what the Baptist theologian John Gill says in connection with all that was fulfilled by Christ. He writes, All the counsels, purposes, and decrees of God relating to his sufferings and death, to the manner in which his death was brought about by one of his disciples betraying him, to the several indignities he should be abused with by Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, and Roman soldiers, and to his death itself, all which were by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and now were about to have and quickly had their fulfilling end, as also all his own covenant engagements and agreements he entered into with his Father to bear the sins of many, to make his soul an offering for sin, to be numbered with transgressors, and pour out his soul unto death, and likewise all the types and shadows of the law, all sacrifices in general, and the daily sacrifice in particular, with the Passover, brazen serpent, and other things, even the whole law, both moral and ceremonial, had their full and final accomplishment in him, together with all the prophecies of the Old Testament relating to this matter, particularly Genesis 3.15. That is that text in the early chapters of Genesis that is sometimes referred to as the Proto-Evangelicum, the first gospel text, where Christ says to the serpent that he predicts the coming of Christ who will crush the serpent's head and will suffer having his heel bruised in the same instance. You could say that the whole rest of the Bible from Genesis 3.16 and following tells the story of how that very thing was accomplished. So all the prophecies and all the types and shadows and all those ceremonial animal sacrifices, they all had their fulfillment in him. And it's interesting to note in this connection that in our text, in Luke's gospel, he makes reference to one very important prophecy found, as I said a moment ago, in Isaiah 53 in verse 12, he refers to the particular part of that prophecy in which he says he was numbered with the transgressors. 
He identifies with transgressors. In our text in Luke, it quotes Isaiah 53 and verse 12 by using the word reckon. He was reckoned with the transgressors. That's the word that is sometimes translated by the word impute. When we read of our sins being imputed to Christ and we read of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, it is that same word that here is translated reckon. He was counted, he was reckoned, he was imputed to be one of those transgressors. He was indeed counted to be their representative and their substitute. This becomes a very important thing to bear in mind when it comes to our participation in the Lord's table. I'm wondering this morning, have you seen yourself as a transgressor? Have you seen yourself as a transgressor of God's holy law? Have you, by the grace of God, come to appreciate how far short you come when measured by that law and how many times you violated or transgressed that law? If you fail to see yourself as a transgressor, there's no reason to think that Christ identifies with you. In Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, Christ says, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when Christ makes that kind of a statement, you shouldn't misinterpret it in such a way as to suggest that there are those then that actually are righteous, that are in no need of Christ's intercession or atonement. No, basically what Christ is saying there is that if you see yourself as righteous, if you fail to see yourself as a transgressor, I basically have nothing to say to you. We'll see you on Judgment Day, and we'll see how righteous you are when you're measured by the law of God, when your words are judged and your deeds are brought into judgment and your thoughts are weighed in the scales of God's justice. The Apostle Paul, that holy man of God, who knew and loved and served Christ with all his heart and with a zeal that surpassed all others, nevertheless saw himself as the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now that's not to say that since Paul gained an interest in Christ, he didn't strive for righteousness. Oh, his detractors would accuse him of opening the door for his followers to abuse grace by suggesting that the gospel just paves the way for sinning with impunity. No, Paul knew that the power of the gospel delivered him as it delivers us all from sin's guilt and sin's dominion. 
But he also saw that apart from Christ's righteousness imputed to him, he had no righteousness of his own that could withstand the scrutiny of God's holy law. Christ identifies, was numbered with transgressors. Do you come into that category? Have you seen yourself in that light? Christ was numbered with the transgressors. Paul saw himself as the chief transgressor. If you haven't seen yourself as a transgressor, there would be no purpose in you partaking of the Lord's table by partaking in these elements. We're professing ourselves to be sinners, but sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by the perfect life and by the atoning death of Jesus Christ. That's what we profess every time we partake of these elements. That's basically what we're confessing to God. Oh God, I see myself like Paul as the chief of sinners. I see that all my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I see that apart from Christ identifying with transgressors, I would have no hope before your judgment bar. But I thank you, Lord, for coming. And I thank you for taking to yourself a true body and a reasonable soul. And I thank you for shedding your blood in order that I might be saved from sin's dominion and sin's guilt. Well, all this leads to my last and final point. We've seen that the things concerning Christ served an an eternal purpose a purpose that was devised before the world was ever created. They also served a prophetic purpose, fulfilling all those prophecies that spoke of Christ's sufferings. Let's think now, finally, on how the things concerning Christ serve a saving purpose. They serve a saving purpose. I said in my introduction that the very name Jesus presents Christ's saving purpose to us. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We do well to ask the question at this point, when Christ says, the things concerning me have an end, we do well to ask, what things, Lord, What things exactly are you referring to when you say the things concerning me? What things was Christ talking about that he said concerned him? Well, keep in mind the immediate context of Christ's statement. The setting is the Passover where Christ has just instituted a new ordinance, the Lord's Supper. He had just predicted at that time that one of them would betray him And that would certainly come to pass. He also predicted that Peter would deny him, and that too also came to pass. But there were many more things in view than Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. The things that concerned him, you see, would involve his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would sweat great drops of blood in anticipation of the things that concerned him. 
And those things would include such things as his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then there would follow a mock trial in which he would be slandered and physically abused by the Roman soldiers. The things that concerned him would include a crown of thorns being pressed into his brow and his back being whipped until it was torn to shreds. The things concerning him would include his being presented to an angry mob that would call out for his crucifixion. And then that crucifixion would follow. So the things concerning him would include the nails being driven into his hands and into his feet. A spear being thrust into his side would also be included among the things that concerned him as well as eventually being taken down from the cross where he died and then placed in the tomb where he would be for three days and three nights. These are the things that were before him when he said, the things concerning me have an end. All of these things that I've just described, you see, became necessary things for our salvation. Sin, you see, cannot simply be overlooked. There are those, I'm sure, that would hope it can and would wish that it could be. But the cross of Christ proves otherwise. Sin must be judged. Divine justice must be satisfied. God's holiness must not be violated, not even for such a noble cause as the sinner's salvation. And the things concerning Christ all served a saving purpose. It's at the cross, you see, where all the glorious attributes of God find themselves displayed and our salvation accomplished. I love the appearance of that word accomplished in our text, for I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. Not all that long ago, we considered Elijah and Moses in the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. We noted how Luke is the only gospel author that allows us to listen in a little bit on the conversation that took place between Christ with Moses and Elijah. You remember what the verse said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 30, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. His decease is viewed as an accomplishment. You may recall in that message, I believe this was a couple of weeks ago, how I pointed out that you really cannot say of any other man that death accomplishes anything. Unless you have a rare instance of uh, dying in order to save someone else's life. But Christ's decease is spoken of as an accomplishment. The things concerning Christ, you see, which had an end reached that end. 
They were fulfilled. They were accomplished. Christ himself, in essence, made that announcement from Calvary's cross when he proclaimed, it is finished. Salvation became an accomplishment when Christ made that statement. And so those that he purchased would be his, and the door would be thrown wide open for anyone and everyone to come to Christ for salvation. So the things concerning Christ had an end. They served an eternal purpose. They, saved a, they served a prophetic purpose. They served a saving purpose. Let me just mention very briefly as a conclusion that the things concerning Christ served an ultimate purpose. And that ultimate purpose is expressed by Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where he writes, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, there's the ultimate end. There's the ultimate purpose or fulfillment, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Underscore that phrase, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Let that be your own proclamation when you partake of these communion elements this morning as you think on all that concerned Christ, which led to your salvation, say it silently from your heart as you partake of the bread and the cup that this is to the praise of the glory of his grace. And may your hearts be filled to overflowing as you affectionately meditate on all that concerned Christ. What a glorious end. It all served, even your salvation and mine. Let's close then in prayer before we serve the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee for this glorious purpose that is revealed in thy word from cover to cover, from the opening chapters of Genesis to the closing chapters of Revelation, we thank thee that this book tells the story of redemption. It shows to us the purpose for which Christ came and lived and died and rose again. O oh Lord, may we ever be mindful of the high price of this accomplishment and we do ask of thee now, O Lord, that it may please thee to draw near to us as we remember what was involved in order for this accomplishment to take place, even Christ's body being broken and his blood being shed. So, Lord, draw near to us now, we ask of thee in Jesus' name. Amen.